Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Well, I didn't say it. (laughs) (laughs) Didn't you say it? I just said the polls show. Oh, you said I, if you believe the polls, which if you I think believe you the should. polls, I, I, okay. I had my, I had my little weasel, my, my little weasel words there. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias here with Ezra Klein. We have both just watched. Um, Donald Trump and Joe Biden debate. Uh, this was a much less weird spectacle than the first Trump-Biden debate. It bore, I would say, like a strong resemblance to other presidential debates that you've like seen in the past. Um, and that's sort of good from like a weeds perspective. Uh, there were real policy arguments glossed. Uh, there was even, I think, some moments where people, you know, Candidates shorthanded things that could stand for some kind of spelling out here. Uh, but on a, on a high level, what did you what did you see? So a couple of things. I did think this was Joe Biden's strongest debate, particularly for long stretches that I've seen him in, with the exception maybe of the one on one Biden Sanders debate. He was just much more in command. He was clearer. He had sort of a long period, particularly around the family separation debate of being able to find a tone of righteous indignation. So I thought he did a, a good job. I saw a tweet going around from my year, Rosenberg, I think it was, saying that um, Donald Trump lost the first debate and, and Joe Biden won the second. And, and I think there was something to that. That said, what was interesting to me from a uh, Weeds perspective was the total absence on Donald Trump's side of really a record or agenda message. So, I mean, Trump came in and what he wanted to do was needle Joe Biden about Hunter Biden emails. It was a very and and then I would say the most effective Trump was all night was particularly in a section around criminal justice reform, like yelling at Biden again and again in a way that I think shook Biden a bit. Well, Why don't you get this done when you were vice president? Why don't you get this done in 47 years in in public life? Like, why do we still have mass, mass incarceration? But just what was weird about it was that was a good attack. I remember Trump doing it in 2016 against Hillary Clinton. But Donald Trump was an outsider running for president with no record in public office. But now he's the president. And the thing is, he's not gotten very much done. The Obama administration has a much longer list of consequential pieces of legislation. They passed the Affordable Care Act, 
stimulus, Dodd-Frank, I mean, it, it goes on and on, um, than the Trump administration does. And so, you know, when it was on coronavirus, Trump just admitted pretty straightforwardly that he has no plan on this, but that he got it and got better. And so, like, don't worry, America, it's not as bad as you might so, think. So will you. <laughs> I mean, it was even it was literally it was like only one percent of you will die there. There was just a total absence of Trump running as an incumbent with a message that under Donald Trump, the country has been great. And like, if you elect Donald Trump, you're going to get more greatness. Or even, um, as you sometimes saw with Obama, uh, a message that I've got all these great plans, but Democrats in, in Congress are the ones who won't let me pass him. It just Donald Trump still wants to run and, and to some degree is running as if he is a like an outsider challenger, like coming into politics through a side door. He does not stand up as president and defend a record or push a, a forward looking agenda. There's just like no there there. And, you know, I mean, it, I think it sounds almost comical if you exist in the like college educated, you know, coastal bubble that like Trump would position his big accomplishment as like Donald Trump is a civil rights reformer. Uh, but I felt like he like, even if you just take it in super literal policy terms, right? Like he underscored the smallness of that agenda by repeatedly saying that he had done more for black Americans than any president since Abraham Lincoln. Like, Lyndon Johnson passed the Civil Rights Act. <laughs> well, he said explicitly that he thinks he's done more than Lyndon Johnson at other times. Right. And it's just, you know, it's just not the same. I mean, the First Step Act is fine. Um, he took a temporary increase in HBCU funding that congressional Democrats foisted on George W. Bush in 2007, and that they then passed a temporary expansion of as part of the ACA reconciliation bill in 2010. And like Trump made that a permanent program. So Okay, I mean, like, 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 it's true that the HBCU presidents praised him for that. But like, it's so small. And it's weird, because it, the the oddball thing about election 2020 is that after a million takes about Trump and, and racism, he has actually improved somewhat with young African American men. I mean, he's the least racist person in that room. And right. he didn't even know yeah. who was in the audience, as he said. Right. <laughs> And he like shouted that out right when he's talking about the 94 crime bill. He's like young African-American men like watch out for Joe Biden. But it's so it was just really small, right? Like a guy who is like COVID-19 pandemic. What are you going to do? Um, and then like on health care, you know, he has nothing really to say. But what is interesting is that he has abandoned. I think a lot of the like insurgent spirit that motivated his his campaign, but he's pretty effective as a kind of a a, a normal conservative counterpuncher against progressive ideas. Like I see like some people in GOP consultant land are like creaming themselves over this like phase out of the oil industry thing, which, you know, whatever. I, I I think people sort of understand that environmentalists don't like the oil industry. But you could tell in Biden's discussion of that, that like Democrats 
X years into the climate change debate aren't really sure what it is they want to say about people who work in the fossil fuel industry and about communities that rely on those jobs. Because they'll get very bold when they're like, this is an existential threat to all of humanity. And then it's like, so are you going to do this thing? that like fucks over three towns in Texas and finds like, well, it's going to be a years long transition. Uh, and there's there's such a gap, right? Like a, like a conceptual gap between this is human extinction point of no return within six to eight years and the like real politics on the ground of people's jobs there. And I just like, I don't, if you're trying to imagine like President Biden is like, signing sweeping climate legislation it's like it's hard for me to see where that's supposed to land well, well there's a, a bunch of these so so let's do this in in order sort of of the debate i think uh, i want to make one more point on on trump and race before we leave it which is that trump began saying that thing about being the president who's done the most for, for black americans when the ex- like basically the continuation of the obama era um economy was just went for long enough and the growth went long enough that black unemployment reached a historic low and just what's been weird is he's kept he like adopted that line then and he was going to make an economic argument around it right like look at unemployment for for black america it's never been this low um and then of course covid hit and covid has had a disproportionately disastrous effect on 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 black americans both in terms of its lethality and in terms of its economic impact and Trump just kept saying the same thing and i think that actually gets us well into the first part of the debate which i just continue to think is the most important part of every one of these debates it's the most central issue in, in the country which is coronavirus where the moderator, um, Christian Walker, who did a great job all night, um, just came out and said, you know, what what will you do? You know, what will you do on coronavirus going forward? And what Trump just said was nothing. I mean, his answer was quite clearly nothing, that at some point there's going to be a vaccine. But between here and there, we cannot let the economy just be closed down. He said very memorably, like, look at New York, like, look at where I'm from. It's a ghost town. And like, Joe Biden over here, because he doesn't want all these people to die from coronavirus, will let it keep being a ghost town. Um, but it is a very strange reelection message to simply say at a time when you can look at the polls and the American people do not think we're doing a good job on coronavirus to say, like, I don't have a plan to turn this around. I'm not going to try to turn this around. Like, we're just going to gut it out. And I didn't die and Barron didn't die. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, your odds aren't that bad. It's a real fatalistic <laughs> re-election message. Oh, and we've got to learn to live with it. But also there's going to be a vaccine next week. And like it's I mean, you you can slip into this cone where they're like they're wrangling about this or that, you know, who did what in Crimea. Um, but obviously, like this is the issue that matters. And Trump you know, he's 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 given up, right? Like all he could do is say that like the only public health measures he can think of would be economically destructive. Right. Like that's his his message at this point, uh, paired with some wishful thinking about pharmacological stuff. And it's worth noting, I mean, this um you know, the disease itself has had sort of ebbs and flows, right? And the timing for him. Uh, politically on this is really bad as we are in a I don't remember which one is ebbing and which one is flowing. It's flowing. Uh, but ebbing is going <laughs> down. We're yeah, in a, we're the, in a flow. The, the, 
the, the, the indicators are all getting worse. And Trump now. said tonight, you know, as these numbers are all going up, it's going away. He said that a couple of right. times. No, no, I mean, right. And so, you know, this message was not true when Trump was saying it a month ago, but it corresponded with a superficial read of the trends. And it's just not going to. I mean, we're going to have headlines about an all-time record in cases. Uh, then Trump is going to say, well, that's because of testing, but the hospitalizations will be up. Uh, deaths hit a thousand uh, today, which, you know, we'd been below that number for a while, but it goes up when hospitalizations go up. So, I mean, I just like, you know, real talk away, like, like that's the election. Like there's no kind of shaking this shaking this loose right I, I don't i don't think anything else that anybody said there really mattered uh but it but it's interesting as a as a window forward into government um and so like you can talk about joe biden's policy agenda as really big if you want to um you know and i think there's some like articles on the vox.com website that sort of talk about it in that way uh but i thought it was interesting and telling that like biden does not do that like he has a lot of plans a lot of issues that he just didn't bring up um and when he talked about his healthcare plan i think he's been a little bit ambiguous wait can we can we into, yeah. do one more thing on coronavirus before we go on uh, to the healthcare oh, yeah. plan because i want to note sure. something about the the biden side of this debate so what you normally expect, and actually this will lead into your point on his healthcare plan well, what you normally expect politicians to do in campaigns is to overstate the ambition of their plans and how much their plans will likely do and understate the trade-offs. And what is striking to me on coronavirus is that that is what Biden does and what Donald Trump does not do. So Biden, you know, gets pushed on, are you going to do a lockdown? And and he had this good line. We're going to, we're going to, I think it was, we're going to lock, stop the virus, not the economy or lock down the virus, not the economy. And, and his argument was that if you do lockdown effectively, or if you do suppression effectively, testing effectively, you don't need to, to lock down the economy. I think that was a more sustainable argument like four months ago when Europe was doing a little bit better or three months ago, maybe. Um, now Europe, which had a better period, most of the countries in Europe are seeing a much bigger spike again. And so it's pretty clear that if you want to keep the coronavirus suppressed, you actually have a really quite large economic trade-off there at the core of it. Um, there's adjustments you can do, and you can definitely do a lot more stimulus and economic support legislation. But Biden's idea there that it's a false choice between lockdown and, and, and virus suppression doesn't really seem to be... I don't think that is as sustainable an argument as it was, uh, again, two or three months ago, whereas Trump just doesn't say he has any plan at all. He doesn't have like he will do on healthcare, and, I, and And I'm sure we'll talk about this in a sec. He doesn't have like a like a secret coronavirus plan that is the best plan anybody's ever had. It's just we'll have to learn to live with it. There's a very grim realism to Trump. Um, I don't want to call it a realism because it's one possible equilibrium when I think much better ones are available with better policymaking. But Biden, I think there is overstating in many ways, like what he'll be able to do. Like you can do a lot better than we've done, he's, but there's he's a real being optimistic. It, it's, yeah. it's tight right now. Um, and I, I become more um, I become more pessimistic watching the big second surge in, in, in Europe than I was before, which is not to say I think Biden's plans on this are functionally the right ones. And like he'll put competent people in charge. But I just think it's an interesting um, distinction between the two of them, because on everything else, Trump wildly exaggerates what he can do and talks about plans he doesn't have. And on this, the central question of the election, 
Trump doesn't even pretend to have a plan. And it's just completely bizarre. Um, but that does bring us, I think, nicely to healthcare, uh, where Biden then inverts this idea. Yeah. So, you know, so Biden has a, a healthcare plan uh, that people have talked about. Um, it's got a bunch of stuff in it. Uh, but I think one of the most interesting things about Biden's healthcare plan is, you know, he brings back the public option as an idea in his plan. And the public option as it existed in House Democrats legislation was this kind of like small public option, right, that would have just helped people who were buying insurance on the ACA exchanges. Uh, several candidates in the 2020 primary uh, had these very expansive public option visions where like anybody could get in on them and it would have not been Medicare for all, but would have probably transformed the healthcare system that way. Uh, Biden discusses the public option in very minimalist terms. One element of his plan is that people who are too poor to qualify for ACA subsidies, but who live in states that haven't expanded Medicaid, will be automatically enrolled in the public option. That's called the Medicaid gap. It's a it's a bit of an oddity in the ACA framework that was opened up by the Supreme Court. Um, but that's like a very small reading of like what a public option is for. And I think it's smaller than like what's on paper on his plan, right? And to me, a more natural way <laughs> to talk about politics would be to talk in really soaring, lofty terms about the impact that your plan is going to have and how it's going to make the healthcare problems that like all of us face so much better. Um, and Biden, he even like at one point, he's like, I believe healthcare is a right, you know, and it it sounds like it's going to be like the lead up to something big. But then he actually offers something rather small you know, in the midst of a pandemic, which I think has really highlighted the basic cruelty and irrationality of a system where it's like, if you get sick, but also the restaurant you work at closed last week, then like, what happens to you? Like, that, like that doesn't make any sense. And, and I mean, I get that, you know, people like their healthcare plan and blah, 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 blah. But like, I, I do wish that Biden could like find a register the way Pete Buttigieg did, Beto O'Rourke did to like, try to say that you're, you're like working towards something other than the status quo, even if you don't want to go all Bernie on it. So I have a bunch of thoughts on this. Um, and on Monday on the Ezra Klein show, Sarah Cliff returns. Uh, Weeds fans will be excited to know for a big conversation oh, nice. about all the healthcare plans. And, and we talk about this in some detail. I have a lot of thoughts on the Biden healthcare plan. But one thing that I think helps explain the dynamic you're talking about, both on a rhetorical but also on a substantive level, because for reasons I'm going to explain, Biden's public option is quite limited. And they've made policy decisions I really deeply disagree with in order to, to limit its effect. Um, but Biden comes out of the wing of the Democratic Party, scarred by the mid-90s when Clinton care fails. Um, and then sometimes we also scarred in a different way by, by Obamacare, which says, like, don't rock the boat. Don't mess with what people have and don't in any way ever for any reason threaten the stability of the employer market, which is where most people get their insurance. And Biden runs in 2020 in the Democratic primary 
as the counterpoint to the Bernies and Elizabeth Warrens and Kamala Harris's of the world who are putting forward plans that would in one way or another basically wipe out the the employer market. On the stage um, at every one of the debates so far, Trump has accused Biden of having a health care plan that would get rid of 160 or 180 million private insurance policies. But Biden really doesn't like Biden opposed those plans. So what Biden did in his public option, he's got a stronger public option than what was there in Obamacare um, in, in those bills. Uh, the key reason it is stronger, in my view, is that it takes advantage of Medicare's buying power. So it uses the same um, it uses the same pricing power Medicare has in order to get lower prices. But then Biden does something I think that is bizarre and unwise, and he does not let employers buy into it. And he does not let employees use the money their employers are paying to buy into it. So I could, as an employee of Vox Media, pay out of pocket myself for Biden's plan, but I cannot get Vox to buy the plan for me. And I cannot get Vox Media to buy the plan for everybody instead of um, buying Cigna, which is, is right. what we so, actually so have. It's, it's, it's like you quote unquote could you quote unquote could, but you wouldn't. It would be crazy. But 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 absolutely nobody would ever. Absolutely do nobody it. would. So your employer cannot do it. You can't get that seventy percent. It doesn't use tax deductible money in the way. So when Vox Media pays for Cigna on our behalf, that money is tax free. If they even just like gave me the money in wages to buy the Biden public option, that money would be taxed, making the um making the uh, the healthcare plan in real terms much more expensive to me. So the the reason I bring this up is Biden has a more narrow public public option, not just in Bernie Sanders, did, but then Pete Buttigieg did, right? Buttigieg had this like bigger public option, as did some of the other Democrats, where you really were looking at something that could eat up a lot of the market. But Biden has kept his public option very narrowly tailored to the Obama individual insurance marketplaces. Like it is there as an option on those marketplaces. It should, in theory, be quite a bit cheaper than what is there now because of the Medicare buying power. But it is not open to the rest of the healthcare system. Like you can't easily get it uh, if you you know, have more normal insurance arrangements. And so as much as Biden does have a plan that I think its size is somewhat undersold in the debate, uh, among other things that he does, which would be quite important, he really reworks the Obamacare subsidies so that they're tied now to a higher quality plan and the subsidies themselves are higher and the amount um, of in the income caps on people are lower, such that like the whole thing would be more generous insurance at a, a probably better like out-of-pocket cost. So he does a lot to make Obamacare better, but he really, really in ways that I consider completely optional and unwise, has chosen to limit the reach of his plan. Like it is like they could have made this plan with very little work, much more transformational. And they've chosen to shut the door because what they did not want to be accused of is disruption of the employer market. So Biden, as you say, undersells his plan a bit, but it is reflecting a real fact about Biden's healthcare instincts, which is to be much more incremental than many of the other Democrats want to be. Yeah. I mean, it's it's disappointing to me. I mean, I, I like Biden is doing really well in the election against Donald Trump, which, you know, has obviously tended to uh, silence various Biden doubters. But like this basic fact, like this is just like, I, I, I don't know, like, I guess I'm more liberal than Joe Biden. But like, I, I wish he would try to fix problems in the healthcare system in a more serious way. And it was why when at the end of the debate, they started talking about climate change, I found Biden's skittishness around the idea of the transition 
from oil again to be telling because it's like I like I get it, you know, like I I I I visit my my in-laws in Texas and like I see there's a lot of excitement there about the urban growth and the Latino vote and the bluing trends, but also like a, a lot of people work in the oil and gas industry in Texas and it's it's hard to say to them that you're going to try to put them out of work. But like if you're going to transition the country away from fossil fuels in an aggressive way, I don't know. It's like it's like you you got to bite that bullet, and then and then you have to come up with something, right? To like explain why it's going to be better, and it's hard, you know. Like that's that's hard. Um, we've also had, you know, so Dylan Matthews did a great piece for Vox about, you know, if you put sort of all the different Biden subsidies for this and that together, um, it takes a tremendous bite out of poverty. It uh, reduces child poverty by about 75 percent, overall poverty by 50 percent. There's so much evidence in these debates that like Biden is aware of that um, or (laughs) knows what these plans are or like to me, it's exciting. Right. But like it doesn't amount to that much if you're not going to um, like try to do it actually and i just like i I, i'm always of two minds about the whole like decency thing and like how joe biden's like a good guy who's gonna be a president for all of us because it's good like that's good that's good campaigning stuff like that's that's why he's winning the election by so much um but i you know I, I don't even think of myself as like a hard bitten ideologue, but like I like this policy stuff. Like I want to see changes. I want to see big oh, Matt, improvements c- compared made to, in people's compared lives. Compared to everybody, if you're doing a podcast called The Weeds, you're, you're a hard bitten ideologue. Yeah, <laughs> just in the technical. But you sense. know, and, and even even <laughs> when like when Trump is like, well, why didn't you do it in in these years? Um, Biden had like a very literal answer to that about like congressional Republicans block criminal justice reform. But like he didn't talk about like all they did a lot of stuff. Yeah, they did quite a the they did quite a Obama bit. administration. And like you could have you could have said like, well, we expanded health insurance to millions of people. So so let me note on that, though, yeah. because I think it's important to. We're sort of having almost like the primary debate here, you know, between like Biden yes. and the Bernie Sanders. But like also on that stage was Donald Trump, who's like the other choice in the election. Oof, and Donald Trump, his health care plan currently is he wants the Supreme Court to invalidate Obamacare based on the stupidest case in the world, where what they're going to do is say that because the individual mandate no longer has a monetary penalty associated with it, it's no longer a tax, which means it is unconstitutional under John Roberts's reasoning from um, the, the initial court case. And it is so important to the law that you have to declare the whole rest of the law unconstitutional uh, as well. So in order to say this part of the law that no longer exists is gone, you have to like get rid of the entire rest of the law. Again, most people don't think the court is going to rule on uh, on the plaintiff's behalf on this, but you know, you never know. And so, Donald Trump's administration is in court trying to get all of Obamacare repealed um, by the Supreme Court. Donald Trump himself has said he wants to see the Supreme Court get rid of the entire law. He keeps saying that he's got a plan to cover everybody with pre-existing conditions and, and give people better health care, but he doesn't. He never has. Um, Trump kept using this line, which I always think is kind of an, uh, like an effective line. Like, you've been in office, you've been in politics for 47 years. Why didn't you fix it? Biden doesn't do a good job throwing it back in his face, but 
Trump ran for office saying he was going to give people better health insurance than Obamacare. Instead, more people are uninsured today than were uninsured when he took office, and he has no plan whatsoever. And so I think it is worth noting that the choice here is like Joe Biden's massively expanded Obamacare, but somewhat less expanded than I would like to see it be, and maybe congressional Democrats can can, can push on that, versus Donald Trump's effort to get the Supreme Court to get rid of the entire thing and um, also continuing efforts to sabotage it and continuous lying about having some plan to replace it and being the true defender of pre-existing conditions. The Trump, and by the way, Pence offered the same lie. This is not an idiosyncratic Donald Trump thing. Like the like the Trump-Pence administration lying on healthcare is truly grotesque, but it also hides the fact that post the failure of Obamacare appeal, Congressional Republicans and Republicans in general, they have no healthcare policy at all. There isn't like something waiting in the wings now. Like they don't know what to do on this issue. They don't have a plan. They don't have an idea. They got nothing left to turn to. Like it's a it's a party with a complete gap where this whole policy area should be. Well, and, you know, I mean, it goes back to the Supreme Court, right? But it's I, I mean, I guess like I, I don't have a strong opinion about what the Supreme Court is going to rule on this. I do think it's crazy that like the mainstream conservative thing to say is that it's outrageous of liberals to suggest that Amy Coney Barrett will rule the way the people who appointed her say they would like the Supreme Court to rule. Like, it's totally possible that this is an elaborate shell game and like she understands that it's a bad case and that Republicans don't even really want to win it. But just like on its face, like Republicans healthcare policy is that they're going to fill the Supreme Court vacancy and they're going to get the Affordable Care Act declared unconstitutional and then they're going to do something ineffective with high risk pools that may or may not constitute protections for people with pre-existing conditions. Um, and like that, that's their policy. And it's it is quite bad. Um, you know, I so uh, Matt Grossman, I think, you know, has this thing about like, like do Republicans only really work as an oppositional movement. You know, like if you can you can imagine, you know, a Green New Deal or whatever else sort of gaining steam in Congress post-election and Republicans are going to come together with like good reasons why. I, I don't know, good, but they'll be like snappy and on the ball. They'll have zingers and they'll have white papers and we'll be all up and down the spectrum as they were at the height of the ACA debate. Uh, but there is just not constructive policy making like happening. Right. And Trump in office, Trump as an insurgent took advantage of that dynamic because he being outside Republican Party circles, just like dashed off all these ideas, like he was going to change trade policy and cities would shine and the jobs would come back. But you see an office that even as he kind of does some of that stuff, like there are taxes on Chinese steel, but he even said himself, like they devalued their currency. So then there's no impact on the trade deficit, which is larger than it's ever been. And he doesn't have like a there's there's like no step two in that plan. Like he he wants to get credit for having put this tax on Chinese imports, but it doesn't work for like all the reasons that the doubters said it wouldn't work. And there's no secondary industrial policy. It's kind of cute that Orrin Cass has this like 
little project now where it's like, what if Trumpism wasn't fake? And, you know, he has PDFs and stuff about it. But you see up there on the stage, like, it's very fake. Like, he gets pressed on healthcare, so he bothers to generate some kind of lies. But I, I thought the minimum wage exchange was really telling just because of how boring it was. Like, Trump was like, well, if we raise the minimum wage, it's going to hurt businesses and they'll lay off workers. And it's like, okay, like that, that just like could have been photocopied from, I don't know, like Bob Dole in the early 90s. Like there was no uh, Trumpian pizzazz and nothing has happened as like the empirical research has changed. The social basis of the Republican Party has changed. Uh, the sort of nominal um, voice of it all is altered. And there's just not a lot of there there. Let's take a break and then talk climate. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media. Pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context. And it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit plannedparenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. So I got some very strong views on the climate change section. <laughs> uh, at some point, the Trump, I guess, pushed Biden to say, we're going to get rid of the oil industry. We're going to transition away from oil. And Trump treated this like this amazing gotcha. And Biden's like, yeah, like we have to transition away from from oil because we have to go to renewables. So Trump is like, well, you heard it. You heard it here, folks. And as you were saying, like, there's a reason he said that. I mean, there are. Uh, states in the union that have significant oil and gas industries. 
But number one, I want to say I don't think that's actually very strong politics. I think that people know Democrats want to transition away from oil. I think this has been like a well-argued thing in politics for years now. And like Trump is up there saying like the Green New Deal will cost $100 trillion. But I, I think people get that the climate people who believe in climate change want to get beyond fossil fuels at some point. But the other thing I want to say, just like stepping back from like weird political theater punditry is fuck that. Like the idea that in the year 2020, there is anyone anywhere who wants to offer some political conventional wisdom that like the dangerous reckless position is we should transition away from oil as opposed to the absolute literal truth of this, which is an insanely dangerous reckless position for lives and for economies is to refuse to decarbonize. Like I, I got nothing on this. Like fuck that. Like Joe Biden's position on this is exactly right, and I was glad to hear him state it baldly. I don't think it changes the politics at all, but I was actually happy to hear Biden say it. Now, Biden also has like a, a somewhat different approach to this, which he kept saying in the debate to, to some other uh, politicians, which is like he's a very coalitional politician. And so what he keeps saying is like, I've got labor and the environmentalists on my plan. And that's actually true. Like Biden put a lot of work into getting labor unions to sign on to his plan. And a bunch of them did, including some that have historically been extremely skeptical of climate change legislation. And Biden, particularly after the Sanders-Biden task forces, has a fairly ambitious plan, at least in terms of its targets. Uh, but his idea is that you're going to get labored buy into this by making it a huge jobs program using union labor, and that will create vastly more jobs than what we're currently doing with, with fossil fuels, which I think is correct. And I saw Griffith on, on my show, who's like launches group Rewiring America, and they estimate 25 million new jobs could be uh, produced by this. So I think the idea that this could be a mega, mega jobs program is true. Um, uh, but, but that's sort of the Biden idea that you're just going to generate much more um, good union labor jobs uh, by doing this decarbonization initiative in a big way than the alternative. But even if that weren't true, I mean, the alternative is unchecked climate change, which like if you don't enjoy the coronavirus, like wait until like the future is just endless, endless, endless natural disaster. Yeah, I mean, so Trump also has some, you know, some specific takes on this that I, I do think are worth talking about. Um, so this is now uh, the second debate in a row in which Trump has complained that Democrats want to make people's windows small, which is not the case. What Democrats want to do is put money into replacing windows with more energy efficient windows, uh, which is not about the size of the window. It's about the number of panes uh, in the window and, and the nature of them. So like a triple pane window has very, very good insulation. Um, and this is a good idea, I believe. It will save people money. It will save the planet. But I want to say that as a resident of a historic district in the District of Columbia, I attempted to, with my own money and no government subsidy, replace my window with the Green New Deal energy efficient windows. And I was told that I cannot because they are not historic enough. And this is something that progressives should think about because they are the ones who make all the historic districts. Um, it is, of course, completely true that if we rebuilt our entire economy around sustainable sources of energy, that it would look visually different from the old unsustainable economy. But that's the point, right? Um, you know, and so, but I, I do think that this all comes together, right? Because like, 
this was like Trump's big gotcha on the oil industry. It was like, if you change the energy system, things would be different. Right. And like, but like, that's, that is true. Like things would be different. Like the, the exteriors of people's houses would look different. Um, you know, he has this crazy thing about like, well, windmills kill all these birds. Right. Uh, but it, like, what is true is that if you have a big wind project, some of the people who live near it um, will object because there are they're kind of noisy, uh, you know, like a lot of things. There's some nuisances associated with them. It's, it's not like the bird holocaust of Trump's nightmare, but it's it's not nothing. Right. And you have to um, get comfortable delivering a, like affirmative case for change to make these things happen and like address the downsides, you know, mitigate the, the lost jobs to people if fossil fuel sectors go away. Um, I, I don't know if you have to do anything about the birds, but, you know, maybe something. Um, I was just like less up on Biden's discourse on this uh, because like it's I, I totally buy like the the narrow jobs element to it. But just like it's going to be a it would be a disruptive process to like really change the energy system. But like we really need to do that, you know, but you at a certain point do have to get out of like reassurance mode and into roll up our sleeves and, and get her done mode. But or, or maybe you don't. Right. I, yeah. I, I just want to make this one <laughs> argument right. because yeah. I, look, it may or may not prove out true, but probably nobody is going to solve our problems, like no matter who got elected. But I do think that one, Andrew Yang at the Democratic National Convention, when he was on the Zoom, like the public Zoom call of all the like defeated Democratic primary yeah. candidates said, the magic Love of Yang. Joe Biden is that he can say radical things, but by virtue of being Joe Biden, they sound in like the context of American politics, very like mainstream and cautious. And something that you're noting, Matt, is that Biden keeps running the opposite of a strategy like most politicians run, which is that instead of like over promising and overselling what his plans do, he's actually under promising and underselling what they do. It's a little bit why it was surprising that he said just like straightforwardly, um, we're going to transition away from oil because he usually couches it more. He like kind of buries it under verbiage. But Joe Biden has a very ambitious at this point climate plan. But he has it as Joe Biden. So when like Trump really tries to like, throw the Green New Deal stuff at him, it doesn't really stick because he doesn't support the Green New Deal. And like he is like not associated with AOC plus three. Like it's understood that he ran against that faction of the party and won. Um, this happens on on healthcare too. Again, Biden has like a quite Biden has now a plan that would move healthcare significantly to the left of where um Obamacare was and where healthcare is. But again, it's like a kind of moderate, modest plan in the context of American politics, in part because Joe Biden sells it that way. So I just think it's worth noting that there's a pretty consistent political strategy here in the way Joe Biden approaches these things, which is that Joe Biden like tries to make things sound reasonable, but like in the background, his plans have actually gotten quite ambitious. And maybe that'll work better than the other way around. I often felt that like a lot of like one thing with Obama was that he like really emphasized how much his plans would do, but they were often much more compromised. Uh, and so like and, and I think like Biden Biden actually like runs off of the inverse political strategy. Well, and I, I, I do think that the triangulation around the Green New Deal sort of lands us in an interesting spot. Right. Because the biggest way that Biden's plan differs from the Green New Deal is that the Green New Deal 
just sort of had like tacked on like all this stuff, right? Where it's like also Medicare for all and also a jobs guarantee. And like, you know, it's kind of like snipped out, right? So like Biden's climate plan is focused on things that have a close relationship to climate change. Um, then the other two issues where Biden's plan really varies from the sort of left Green New Deal is that Biden has um, money for nuclear research and that Biden has money for carbon and capture he and ban sequestration fracking. and he doesn't ban fracking. Um, but he I, I, it's, I think, debatable how unbanned fracking is. Under sure, well, it's not plan. technically illegal. Uh, right. But at least on two of those three things. Biden's position is actually more aggressive in decarbonizing than the like pure Green New Deal. Um, there are reasons why environmentalists don't like nuclear power and don't like carbon capture and sequestration, uh, but they're actually they're not climate change reasons. They're like other ecology reasons. Um, so you know, from a pure climate stance, Biden's climate policy is as aggressive, if not more so, than really anything um, that's in the Green New Deal text. But because of the elaborate fuck up of like banning cows and whatever else happened, it's come to be understood as this like moderate kind of alternative, uh, which is nice, you know, to the extent that you can then legislate on any of these topics and like go get things, things done, uh, you know, which on one level, like all roads lead back to the filibuster. Um, though on another level, I just I wonder how much buy in there even is from Senate candidates. You know, I've been I've been trying as we get closer to Election Day to like canvas what our Democratic Senate challengers running on. They are all so much more vague than the presidential candidates. Uh, you can you can like really see the nationalization of media at work in like trying to understand where Teresa Greenfield stands on the issues. And it's like nothing, nothing against Iowa journalists, but like th there's just there's just not at as many people working in state and local journalism as there used to be, whereas there's like more people than ever doing national stuff. And the candidates have not been seemingly like pressured to really spell out what they're doing. Like every every Democratic senator I, I look for has like some kind of public option thing. But we're familiar with the like 17 variants of public option and like the employer firewall and everything else. And you like you really search in vain, um, you know, in like Cal Cunningham's discussion of healthcare for some kind of sense of where he stands on things like that. And on climate, they're like they're really vague and like details matter so much in that kind of space because you are dealing with you know, with with trade offs of various kinds, but even just like basic questions of magnitude. Right. So it could be like we need to invest in clean energy. That could be, you know, a six million dollar grant or it could be six hundred billion dollars. Um, and it's just like it, it really matters. And it's it's my biggest question about sort of like where Democrats are in 2021 is like, are they really poised to unleash like transformational energy policy or is it going to be more like 2009 where 
I think like a lot of elite people were quite worried about climate change even 10 years ago, but they just like they really didn't want to do it on a political. Yeah, level. I mean, I've done some reporting uh, on this stuff, particularly among Senate Democrats. And what I would say is the difference between how well versed key senators are and how united key senators are on like where is the zone of the possible and the zone of consensus on healthcare policy versus climate policy is indescribably large. Like if you ask Senate Democrats what they're going to do on healthcare policy, like like kind of very liberal end of the caucus to more moderate end of the caucus, you basically get the same answer. It's a public option. It's an increase to subsidies. This is before even Biden took the primary. Like it's a public option. It's an increase to subsidies. They would like to bring the Medicare age down, um, and they, you know, like to do a couple other like semi-technical things. But it's it's roughly in the direction Biden is. Biden just picked up what's more or less like the set the like the center of the caucus plan on climate. They're all over the place, um, and people have really different levels of understanding of the issue. And there's a, just a lot less technical sophistication on the issue. Um, climate is complicated. Like if you look at the plan House Democrats put out um, or the House Democrat relevant committee, it gets a 600 plus page plan. And I don't say that to, to say that like, well, big plans are scary. Just that's not even true, like like end of the day legislative language. And it's a really, really, really um, detailed piece of work, uh, you know, before you even got through like the final horse trading or any of that. And and most just Democrats are not there on like what you're going to need to do, you know, before you get into like all the interest groups coming in when it really becomes a thing. So I would just like I think Democrats could actually do healthcare pretty quickly. Sarah and I talk about this actually a fair amount on on, on Monday. And she I should say has a different view on this than I do. But I think Democrats, if they can do anything quickly, can do healthcare quickly. Climate, they are there's there's a lot of dissension, but more than dissension, just a lot of confusion in the caucus. Right. Well, but I mean, I think that like confusion and dissension to an extent go hand in hand. Right. It's like one reason I feel like there's a good amount of healthcare consensus is that the more progressive members, I think, have a clear understanding of where the more moderate members are. You know, so like it's just like clear in their own heads what's like us dreaming on the whiteboard versus like what's us negotiating over the bill text um, because they 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 each understand where they are themselves and then they understand where the other members of the caucus are. And, you know, leadership does its leadershipy things and Biden has picked up the sort of main elements from that and they're kind of waiting uh, like they, they need some more senators <laughs> to pass a bill. Uh, but I think the newly elected Democrats, if they get the majority, are going to like find that the health care plan has been written already. But on climate, it's like like I don't think anyone on Capitol Hill really knows what like John Tester's red lines are. Like it's clear that Montana is a natural resources state. Um, that he is just in tough races in general is probably not as gung-ho as they might want him to be. But like, what does that mean, right? It's very, uh, it's very unclear. And, and I think it makes it hard for the progressives to like engage in a meaningful way, right? With like, here's what we're fighting for. Here's what we're doing. Uh, but it's unfortunate. Like there's, you know, there's like a reasonable amount of urgency 
around uh, energy policy, right? I mean, both because the problem is pressing, but also, like, everybody knows this on some level, but I feel like the, the political system, including Democrats, really resist it. But it's like a 3% reduction in CO2 emissions that occurred in 2002 would have been, like, incredibly valuable, compared to one that occurs in 2023, right? Like it's, it, delay is extremely costly, especially when we have um, such low interest rates, you know, like it's very easy to now to finance like huge investments in anything. Um, so anything you do that works, if you could do it quickly, would be really, really good. But the, the politics I do feel like just sort of push to deferring more. I think that is completely right. I also think it's a good place to to come to a close. But before we do, I want to note because we've been talking at at the weedsy level, but as we've been talking, you know, a bunch of the snap polls have come out, and I think the best of the polling here gets done by uh, Data for Progress because they both like look at actual debate watchers, but also then weight them to what the electorate actually is because. Uh, People who watch debates um, are more educated and, and tend to lean a bit, little bit left compared to, to the electorate. And, and when they do that, they found that 52% said Biden won and 41% said Trump won and 7% said uh, they were undecided. That's a pretty big win for Biden. It's very similar to what they found after the first debate, which was a 51-39 decision. So, you know, I kind of suspect this more or less just like this looks like a lot of polling, frankly, where about 51, 52 percent of the country thinks Biden um, would be better and Trump polls in the in the low 40s. But but this debate does not look like it changed anything for Donald Trump or gave him any kind of even as he came in with a somewhat different strategy, gave him any kind of different result than the first one. And at this point, if you believe the polls, which I think you should at least to some extent, um, he needed to make a change. And that clearly didn't happen here. Yeah. And I mean, I think if you've listened to this whole tedious discussion, um, like Trump didn't, you know, so Trump, I thought, was a little less embarrassing to himself than he was in the first debate. But some of that was that, like, once mentioning Hunter did not, like, instantly provoke Joe Biden to, like, evaporate into a cloud of dust. Like, Trump didn't have any other, like, knockout punches. Like, he wasn't taking huge swings. And when you're losing really badly because you've been unpopular your whole presidency, and then a, like, unprecedented catastrophe befalls the country, like, that just doesn't, it doesn't get the job done. Right. I mean, it's almost why I wanted to start talking to 2021, because it, it is just it's it, you heard from Trump a lot of sort of classic rhetoric of reaction kind of stuff. And it's it's just the kind of arguments that are going to make policy progress difficult, um, even if Trump loses the election, which he he seems to be on track to do. Uh, you can you can make us eat our hats, uh, I guess, in two weeks if that doesn't work out. <laughs> Well, I didn't say it. <laughs> <laughs> didn't you say it? I just said the polls show. Uh, oh, you said if you believe the if polls, you believe the which polls, which I think you I, should. I, I, had my, I had my little weasel, my, my little weasel. If you, words, if yeah. you believe the polls, if you believe the polls. I mean, I, I talked to uh, seven people, one of whom owns a boat. Um, the boat guy does like Trump, so no, he's. I think he's definitely yep. going to win. Boat owning <laughs> Americans. That the 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 boaters are still out there, even as Judge of all. Okay, uh, thanks. We should uh, we should hang this up because I'm I'm clearly getting punchy as the hour approaches midnight. Um, so thanks as always to our producer Jeffrey Geld, uh, and the weeds will be back on Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs>